Our reading today is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. This is the word of God. It's great to be uh, speaking to you today. And we're in a series at the moment called Battles and Blessings. And over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at some of the blessings that we receive. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the battles. Now, it's important to say uh, that we all face battles in life. And you might be here today and you're facing a battle in your personal life or maybe in a relationship or maybe in your workplace, uh, maybe with a colleague or with a boss, uh, maybe you're facing a battle in your health. Battles are as much a part of living as breathing. And one of the key questions uh, of life is not whether you will face battles, but it's what battles you'll face and how you will face them. And battles are not something to be feared. They're something to be faced. The Bible is remarkably upfront about, as we've seen, about how there are these remarkable blessings which are given to us in the midst of battles and how when we face battles, even in the midst of those battles, there is a blessing to be found. So I want to speak today about how to face your battles. And the first thing we see in this passage is you are in a real battle. Paul is keen to get across here uh, as he comes to this conclusion of this remarkable letter. He says, put on God's armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, and, and the word there means like our wrestle, our fight, our hand-to-hand combat is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so you need to know that you are in a fight. You're in a battle right now. And sometimes you might be aware of that, and it very much feels like that. It feels like every step you take is in contested ground. And sometimes you might be completely unaware of that. And there's like a cosmic element to that battle, which Paul describes you know, huge powers, principalities, forces, all seems quite um, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Uh, and then there's a very intimate, personal side to that battle. This hand-to-hand combat, this wrestle, this personal battle that people have to face. And I, th- I just want to acknowledge that sometimes in the church, we can give a slightly false impression of what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes you can, you can think that following Jesus might mean that you step into a life of untroubled joy. And uh, it's almost like you're skipping through fields of flowers and the sun is shining and everyone's smiling at you. You never have a difficult email in your life. The traffic lights are always green. The trains are always on time. Uh, People only say encouraging things to you. And uh, if you're not living like that as a Christian, then somehow you're doing it wrong. 
And that's not quite right, because while it's true to say that the Christian life is one of remarkable peace and joy and freedom, it's also the case that when you encounter Jesus, when you become a Christian, you step onto the field of play in a whole new way. It's not just a spectator sport anymore. You're on the team. And you know in life that you only tend to get tackled when you're moving the ball down the pitch. And so there's a sense in which you become a target in a new way. And there's lots that's amazing about that. Often it's at the most exciting times when God is moving powerfully, when you're seeing lots of people come to faith, when you feel a new sense of purpose, when you're connecting with God, when you're taking steps forward in job, maybe you're reading the Bible this year or you've you're been doing our 21 days of prayer, you're taking these steps forward. And it actually feels quite exciting, it feels almost exhilarating to see all that God's doing in your life. And it's often at those times when you start to hit a few bumps in the road. So it's not so much about coming to faith in Jesus and putting on rose-tinted glasses. It's about coming, faith, coming to faith in Jesus and then removing the blinkers and helping us to see a little bit more clearly what is actually already going on. You will face battles in life, often not because you're doing anything wrong, but because you're doing something right. So one of the truths of life that uh, opposition is attracted to influence like metal is drawn to a magnet. So opposition is attracted to influence like metal is drawn to a magnet. So if you have a little bit of influence, you attract a little bit, just a little, just a little bit of um, opposition, and it feels like you can sustain it. It's okay. I can deal with this. Um, if you have a lot of influence, uh, then you attract a lot of opposition. Um, a lot of uh, challenges come your way. It's just, it's just you attract it because opposition is attracted to influence like metal is drawn to a magnet. And the thing is, you might be here today and you say, I don't have any influence. I don't want any opposition to come my way. No, not me, little old me. I can scarcely get a coffee in the coffee shop. The baristas ignore me. At a bar, they wouldn't let me order a cocktail. You know, when I wave for a taxi, it doesn't stop. I don't have any influence. But that's not the case. You know, if you've encountered Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Your heavenly father is in charge of the universe. And he bends his ear to hear your prayer. So you have extraordinary influence. It's a spiritual reality for every Christian. And so inevitably, some opposition will come your way. Now, I just also want to acknowledge that uh, it might feel, particularly, I know some, I met some people earlier this morning who it's your very first time in church today, and you might be like, goodness me, I picked a Sunday to come. In the reading, it's the thing about a devil, and you know, there's like spiritual forces, and goodness me, I only was just starting to feel there might be a God, and they tell me there's this other side, and what's going on? And I just want to say to you, I think it's really important in the cultural moment we're in, which I think is changing very fast. But for most of human history, most cultures in the world, most nations in the world have had a category for what we would call supernatural evil. And actually, over the last 20 years, our culture in this place at this time has, has, has moved that very much to the fringes. But in some senses, it's an aberration. It's an abnormality. It's highly unusual. And actually, even in our current culture, that is shifting very quickly. I think it's almost disappearing now. There's more awareness of evil and more interest in those things than I think there ever has been in my lifetime. 
You, you, you see it on the sides of buses. You see it in films. You see it on Netflix. There's more shows about serial killers than there are about doctors or you know, other things. And there's nothing wrong with listening to shows about serial killers. I know some of you love those podcasts. But it's, um, <laughs> I'm just saying it's interesting that we're fascinated by this idea of evil. Andrew Dalbonco, New York Times writer, wrote in his book, uh, The Death of Satan. He said, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And I think we see that. It's like toothpaste. We squeeze it out of the public sphere and then it appears in all these other places and we're not even sure how to name it, how to diagnose it, how to respond to it. So I just want you to allow for the idea this morning, if you're finding this a bit unusual, that you might be a little bit culturally narrow, a little bit ethnocentric, and it might be good to learn from other cultures and other times and listen to what the Bible has to say about this. Now, there are two risks when we talk about this whole area. The first is to be obsessed with evil, and uh, the devil, our enemy, would love that. He'd love to draw our focus from God and all that God has called us to do and draw our focus from Jesus. Loves if you're obsessed with it, but also the other risk is to be completely ignorant of it and think it doesn't exist at all, and to be completely unaware and undefended. And again, our enemy would be delighted about that because then you can be easily picked off. And the Bible is much more balanced. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus, we know it must be from his account. In Luke's gospel, talks about how he faced off against the evil one in the desert when he was tempted. And yet Jesus never treats it as the main thing. He never lets it distract him from the main thing. Have to deal with it. Don't want to be obsessed. But neither do we want to be naive. Because if you're not aware that you're in a fight, it's very easy to get knocked out. When I was 16 years old, I went to a nightclub. There's a lot in that sentence, which we wouldn't unpack right now. Um, and uh, I was in this nightclub, and it was going quite well, having a good night. And then I saw a guy was behaving, I thought, a bit inappropriately towards a young woman. And, um, you know, white knight in shining armor that I am, I kind of thought I'd, you know, go and help out. And so I went over, and I said, are you okay? And she said, oh, thanks so much. You know, he's being a bit forward. And I said, oh, don't, don't worry, you know. I, and then she just said thanks and turned around. Anyway, he turned around, and she'd gone. And he blamed me, so he was very upset with me, said I was ruining it, da, da, da. and I was, you know, I, I can talk myself out of most things. So even though he was quite big and quite angry, I was like, look, you know, look, I, I just had to do something. Don't, don't make a big thing of it, da, da, da. Anyway, two guys who were with him turned around and, and, and walked off, and I thought, that's better odds. And, uh, <laughs> and I was still trying to talk with him, explain why I'd had to be involved, you know, why it maybe looked a little inappropriate, but I wasn't judging him and all these kind of things. And then his two mates came back with eight other friends. And, um, and I thought, that's not so good. And they kind of crowded around me in my semicircle. And I was like looking at this thinking, this is not really going well. But I, I still thought I could back myself. So I was like, look, guys, you didn't come to a random club tonight to fight some guy you've never met before. Turns out they did. And... Um, <laughs> And one of them just kind of punched me across the face. But the thing was, it wasn't that hard a punch. And if you know, it didn't really connect. So it was like a glancing blow. So it hurt a little bit. I was just like, that's rude. And then I carried on talking to the rest of the group, saying, look, come on, there's a way through this. Violence, you know, in this day and age. Da, 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 da. Then another guy hit me. And that was a proper punch. Actually quite hurt quite a bit. Took a step back. I was like, ow. And then my friend James came running out and over and said, Steve, it's on. Stop talking. Start doing something. And I was like, oh, right. And then it all kicked off. And, um, you know, the bouncers took their side. And uh, we were ejected 
And to this day, I remain banned from Visage Nightclub in Hamel Hempstead. Um, <laughs> it's not a serious penalty, but the injustice of it grieves me because we didn't actually do anything wrong. And, uh, but if you're in a fight and you don't realize you're in a fight, sooner or later, you're going to get knocked out. Sometimes the time for talking has finished and it's the time to start doing something. And Paul writes, he says, you know, our struggle, our battle, our hand-to-hand combat is not against flesh and blood. Uh, Lovelace, uh, who wrote one, a really fascinating book about principles of spiritual life, uh, says this. He says, much of the church's warfare is fought by blindfolded soldiers who cannot see the forces ranged against them and who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. I love that image. Two soldiers blindfolded being agitated and prodded and proked by invisible enemies and taking out their swords and swinging wildly at each other because they think it's the other person who is causing all their issues. You're in a battle, but it's not against flesh and blood. Just want to do a quick thought experiment with you. Why don't you close your eyes? And um, you can do this online as well. And just picture in your mind's eye your biggest personal enemy today. Now, glad no one's looking at me. I was worried about it. Oh, one person is. And uh, now, your true enemy is not that person. Your true enemy is a spiritual enemy, far more powerful, far more devious, far more scheming, far more dangerous. The person you've just pictured for all their faults and for all their mistakes and for all their errors, they're just flesh and blood. You know, they're just molecules and organs. They're flesh and blood. They are not your true enemy. The reason Paul says here, your battle, your fight is not against flesh and blood is because so often when you're facing difficulties, when you're facing battles, it's easy to just project the blame onto other people. So easy when you're in a battle to personalize it and to project it on someone and think, if I could just get that person out of my life. Oh, all my problems started when I met that person. Oh, all my issues are with that person. If I could just extricate them, put some distance between me and them, if I could just remove them in some way, then it would be absolutely fine. Now, not every personal problem in your life is caused by your spiritual enemy. Like, it doesn't really work to go away and say, oh, that's the devil again, you know, when you get into a fight or when you have an argument at a petrol station or whatever it is, or a disagreement with a colleague. You can't just say, oh, yeah, now I see what it is. Yeah, it's not, it's not because they're a nightmare or I'm a nightmare. It's, it's the evil one at work. It doesn't work just to say that every time. But allow for the possibility that that might be at play in some of your relationships. Why? Because the Holy Spirit loves to rest, not just on people, but on the relationships between people. And so it makes sense that the enemy would not just attack people, but would attack the relationships between people. Your enemy wants to isolate you. He wants to sow division. He wants to try and distract you from how God is at work in your life and how he's making you more holy by getting you to focus on other people's faults. He wants you to see other people as opponents and competitors rather than friends and collaborators. 
He wants to play your pride and insecurity so he can set you up against people. I had a colleague a number of years ago and we were working in a similar sector and as it happened, he was a Christian. And people would often play us off against each other. And sometimes they just do that in a context. And so we'd had a few kind of like little skirmishes, a few little run-ins, and then we had one thing where we almost fell out and we sat down together to talk about it. And he was so wise, he said to me, do you know, Steve, people like really setting us up against each other. I didn't think that's great. I said, I didn't think that's great either. He said, do you know what we need to do? We need to commit to thinking the best of each other's actions and of each other's motives. He said, I think that's probably the only way through. And I thought, he is absolutely, utterly and completely right. Because, you know, when there's ambiguity in a relationship, you tend to project onto the ambiguity. When there's ambiguity in a relationship, you tend to interpret ambiguity negatively. And so I found if there's a difficult situation, the only way I can get through it is I'm just going to think the absolute best of this person's motives and of their actions. I'm not going to project my stuff onto them. I'm going to keep my side of the road clean. And I'm going to pray that actually God might use it for good. Often, I think, when we're set up against other people, it might be because there's a deeper kingdom significance to the relationship and the enemy wants to skew it off, blind you to its potential. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Save your energy for the real battle. And then Paul says, our struggle. We need each other. The images of ranks of soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder, ready to face the adversaries. You can't do this alone. You're not meant to do it alone. You need other people. You know, we need young people with energy. We need older people with wisdom. You know, we need people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different wisdom. We need people alongside us. You know, we, we, we want to lean into what God is doing. We don't want to get good at pointing out other people's faults. I had a moment when I was in my 20s where I, I realized I was getting quite good at pointing out the faults. And I thought, I don't want to come face to face with Jesus. And he said, oh, Steve, what did you do with your life? You, you lived in this area for a while. There was some exciting stuff happening there. What did you do? He said, well, I thought my role was to point out the faults. No. Oh, you lived there for a while. There's some exciting stuff happening there. Loads of opportunities for mission. What did you do? I thought my role was to point out where people who were doing great things, could have done them better. No. I didn't want to be like that. So I said, Lord, I don't want my struggle to be against flesh and blood. So I'm going to keep my side of the road clean. You were in a battle. But the second thing we see in this passage is you have a powerful ally. Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be empowered, it almost means be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Another way, let the Lord's strength empower you. Or find your strength in the Lord. You know, I personally am independent. I don't like being dependent. I love to think I can make it on my own. I hate to rely on other people. So one of the things the Lord has taught me most about myself is that I need to. But when you're in a spiritual battle, you cannot survive on your own. You haven't been made in that way. You were never designed to survive on your own. And you cannot because you don't have adequate power to engage on your own. You can only do it in his mighty power. And one of the blessings of the battles that we face in life is that we realize all over again just how much you need God's help. 
Two things about the Lord's, a couple of things about the Lord's power. In Ephesians 1, we heard last week, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. God's power for us, for you, in whatever battle you're facing today, is the same power which he used to raise Jesus from death to life. So God's power, which is at work for you in whatever battle you're facing today, is resurrection power. Incomparable resurrection power. You have resurrection power on the inside of you. Never underestimate the significance of the power that the Lord gives to you, especially in the midst of the battle. It is working for you. It's extraordinary power. But secondly, we see his promise. He's never going to abandon you. We heard in Ephesians 1, he's redeemed you. In Colossians, it says he's forgiven all our sins, having cancelled the charges which stood against us. He's taken it away and nailed it to the cross. He's disarmed and triumphed over the powers against us. Jesus, by his death on the cross, by his bloodshed for us, has disarmed the enemy. It's not like an equal and fair fight. Sometimes in life, it seems like evil is so powerful and goodness is so weak. At best, in films sometimes, you see it as like an opposing battle between two equal and opposite forces. But that is not the case at all. Jesus has conquered death and he has conquered sin and he has shed his blood to win you. And what that tells you is he's taken hold of you and he's never going to get go of you because it cost him the most precious resource on the face of the universe, his own blood. He's never going to let heart go of you. So when the enemy comes along saying, look, I've got a charge sheet. Look at all the charges against this person. It's like, no, Jesus says, no, I've already nailed that to the cross. And so it isn't like an evidence of your failing. It's an evidence of his love. It's not an evidence of where you've fallen short. It's an evidence of how far he was willing to go to win you. It's not an evidence of accusation. It's an evidence of your value, your incomparable value. So often in life, the enemy will come to you and in temptation, he will hide God's holiness. Say, God doesn't doesn't care. He's like a cosmic teddy bear. Just do whatever you want to do. Don't worry about it. And you're like, okay. And then you do it. And then he hides God's love. He comes with accusation. You should never have done that. God's never going to forgive you. You shouldn't even be in a church. You shouldn't have come today. Yeah, God is holy. He's utterly loving. And he was willing to go to any length to win you. You have his power. You have his promise. And you also have his proximity. He's close. Find your strength in the Lord. Sometimes I think in the hardest of times, they're the least spiritual of times. But it's not the case. You know, the blessing of the battle is that Jesus is close to you. I was just thinking of times in my life this week when I've been in a battle, and what's that felt like? I remember once I was doing, when I was working as a lawyer, I was doing such a difficult case. And, you know, lots of the cases I did were difficult. That was why they paid me the big bucks. Why they used to pay me the big bucks. <laughs> and, uh, and there was one, it was like a really complex case. There was a lot of pressure. It was in the public eye. The client was challenging. The personalities were challenging. Just the, the subject matter was not pleasant, and for some reason it got under my skin. And I felt anxious in a way I'd never felt before. 
And it affected me like three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, I'd wake up. I was like, I've never seen this hour of the night before. What's going on? It's dark. It affected me at work. I'd like, you know, I'd, I'd had, and I, the only way I could, I could have thought I can't get out of it. I even went to see a senior colleague. I said, can I duck out of this case? I find it really stressful. He said, no, we don't do that. Push through. So I have to push through. And I just got into work early and I would listen to worship music and I would pray. That's all I could do. At lunchtime, I'd go for a walk, listen to worship music and pray. I'd take the long route home sometimes. I'd listen to worship and I'd pray. That's all I could do. And in that moment, I didn't feel God close, but I knew he was there. And I look back now and I see how he strengthened me through that difficult season. It's another time when we were facing so many challenges. And it was such a confusing time. And I felt completely confused and lost. I didn't know which way to turn. Just crisis after crisis after crisis. And what I found I could, could do was to wake up in the morning and read the Psalms until I felt peace. And then I'd crack on with my day. And when I went to bed at night, I'd read the Psalms until I felt peace. And then I'd crack on with my sleep. <laughs> the only thing I could do. But I felt him with me. He was close in the struggle. First time, I didn't know he was there, but he was. Second time, I felt him there like he was in the room. When you are going through a battle, whether you feel God close or not, you can strengthen yourself in the Lord, in his power, and know that he is with you and he is close by you. And then finally, we see that you can stand. Paul says again and again here, he says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. You may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done anything to stand, stand firm then. Stand and hold your position. Stand when it feels that all you can do. Stand when you're not sure actually how you can keep going. You can stay on your feet and you can stand. You know, there are times when standing firm is enough. There are times when standing firm is a huge deal. To realize that Jesus has won us this territory. He's won us this opportunity. He's given himself for us. And what we have to do is just hold the ground, shoulder to shoulder, with our brothers and sisters, and say, we're not going to take a backward step. We uh, work in a number of prisons across the region, and 18 months ago, uh, there was a problem, and... Uh, was getting a bit contested, really challenging, had a number of meetings about it. And uh, there was a decision, should we pull out of the prisons? And I didn't really want to do that, but it was getting really difficult. So we talked about it for a while, and eventually we said, no, no, we, look, we've had these open doors into the prisons. Even though it's really challenging, even though it's really difficult, we've got to stand firm. We've got to stay there and, and, and hold the ground. And so we did that. I'm so pleased we did. During just one of those prisons, multiple prisons, one of those prisons last year, 19 people were baptized. It's amazing, 90 people in just one year. What I love even more about that <laughs> is that because so many people got baptized in such a short space of time, someone who's quite senior within the prison authorities has stopped baptisms for the time being. And has said, look, no one should get baptized for all. We need to work out what's going on. All these people are getting baptized, a bit worrying. Da, 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 da. I love that. I absolutely love that. Because there's one way to guarantee there'll be more baptisms this year than last year, and that's to ban baptisms. <laughs> I mean, it's like, have you not met a prisoner? It's like, you know, you establish a rule, they want to break a rule. I mean, you can imagine on the wings, they're going to be like, come, 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 come. 
They're not going to be selling phones and drugs. They're going to be like, do you want to get baptized? Yeah. <laughs> come in, come, come. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son. Holy Ghost. Go, 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 go. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. But it felt like everything was ranged against it. It felt like all we could do was stand. It felt like we weren't having an impact. And then within the year, the position is completely transformed. You know, youth. We've been praying all last year for youth. And there's so many. I, I, I read article after article. There's a new book coming out by Jonathan Haidt in just a, just a month. The Anxious Generation. Talking about the challenges that our youth are facing. Untold, extraordinary challenges. Pandemic, social media, the age of the iPhone. Just extraordinary rates of anxiety and depression. Things going on. And I'm like, what do we do? Should we back away? Is it too complex, too difficult? No, 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 no. We're going to stand firm. So moved on Friday night. This church was packed with youth. Just going crazy. There was candy floss and popcorn and everything you could possibly imagine. And youth just celebrating and worshipping and people inviting their friends. And kids who'd never been to church before coming and saying, this is cool. I'll take that. We've got to stand firm. You know, it's so tempting when you're going through a battle to duck out. So tempting to walk away. So tempting to go quiet. So tempting to dilute the faith that's been handed down through the generations to us. Take your stand. You're not alone. You're in the massed ranks across the world through history of those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and their King. And they rely on you just as much as you rely on them. You know, if one person leaves a Roman line of soldiers, there's a gap. The enemy can exploit it. But as long as we stand shoulder to shoulder in the line, firm, straight ahead, there's very little that could be done. You know, other armies would, 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 would crash against Roman legions like, like waves on rocks. Because they would stand firm and they would stand shoulder together. Don't shrink in a season of battle from the sphere of leadership that's been given to you. Don't shrink from the sphere of influence that's been given to you. Don't cede leadership in this season. Don't back away. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Don't go quiet. Let the attacks alert you to the significance of the influence you carry. Wake up and get ready. Because I've found when I'm in a battle, I now know the battle is coming at me is because the enemy wants to distract me from remarkable kingdom opportunities that are going on in other areas of my life. So just say, oh, you woke me up. You shouldn't have woke me up. Because now I'm going to see with kingdom eyes the significance of the relationships God's blessed me with. I'm going to lean into those relationships, even the ones that are a little bit more challenging. I'm going to make the most of the opportunities that come my way, even though it's a stretch. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to step out with faith. I'm going to pray even more that God's name would be lifted high in our generation, in our city, in our church. I'm going to intercede for this rising generation. I'm going to pray for the least last and lost to encounter Jesus. I'm going to pray that we see more people come to faith over the last three weeks than I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to pray that that continues. Yeah, I might be in a battle. I'm not going to waste that battle. I want to see how God delivers his blessing right in the midst of it. How to face your battles. That's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. Let's stand and we're going to pray.